O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will bring you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Thank you, Reese, for uh, reciting that for us. Uh, and good morning, Providence. It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is uh, my name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you haven't noticed, it's been about six or seven weeks since I've been up. I haven't done the math exactly. It's been about six or seven weeks since I've been up here to be able to preach. Some of you, the light bulb is going on in your head. You're thinking, oh, that's why I've enjoyed Providence so much this summer. Hey, hey, I get it. I'm not judging you. It's okay if you think that. It's been a good run, I think. But I'm back up here today. You got to listen to me, and and I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be good today. And I was hoping actually to come off. You know, you come off a break, and you're thinking about coming back in for the first time in a month and a half. And I wanted to have kind of a fun, upbeat, kind of encouraging word for you guys to get really excited and riled up, but I got Psalm 6. And Psalm 6 is anything but fun and upbeat. As a matter of fact, it's more like sad and depressing. It's full of grief. And, and uh, so it's not going to be quite that fun, upbeat thing, but I think it's a timely word that uh, some of us need to hear as we're challenged uh, by God's word. And this is kind of how I've processed it, or one of the things that's come up as I've processed it, is um, uh, I was reflecting uh, on just like the last month. And uh, many of you remember uh, about a month ago, I was scrolling the headlines and I saw the news that uh, Kate Spade had committed suicide. You probably saw that, right? Now, I don't know much about her, but I know that she is a famous designer and I know that she has her name plastered all sorts of, or over all sorts of different items. And you think, wow, she made a lot of money. Wow, she had a lot of fame. There's, uh, there's like a, a life that a lot of people would desire there. But she took her own life. And then, if you remember scrolling the, the headlines, just a matter of days later, you remember the iconic foodie, Anthony Bourdain. The news came out that he also took his own life. And you think, man, this guy, so many of us in here, me included, looked at this guy's life and think, man, is there anything better than traveling the world and eating the best foods from the best cities and the best restaurants? Like, that's the kind of life that we want to live. And he was a celebrity. And he was famous. He, he made a decent amount of money doing this. And, and at the end of the day, he also took his life. And I don't know if any of you were thinking uh, along the same lines as me, but I thought, man, first one celebrity, then another taking their life. Like, Who's next? This must be a lot more common than I realize, this anguish. 
And then, uh, over the past few weeks, I've noticed as I've sat down, had phone calls with some of you, um, and, and talked about some of your stories, uh, I realize that there's a, a decent amount of pain in people's lives going on right now. You're going through some, th- some painful things, you're suffering some incredible loss, and you're trying to figure out how to take one uh, step in front of the other. Like, it's a serious matter. And, and I started to think, man, if, if it's true of many of you guys, this must be a lot more common than I realized. And then uh, I was thinking back to uh, a handful of weeks ago when Andrew got up here and preached one of the Psalms, uh, and he preached into anxiety. And, and I know that as I was hearing that sermon, I was like, man, my soul is riddled with anxiety right now. And I talked to my wife, and we were talking about her anxiety, and, we were talk- and I talked to a bunch of you, and you were talking about just this stress, this overwhelming anxiety that you, that, you, that you are feeling. And I thought, man, if it's true of me, and it's true of so many of you, man, this must be a lot more common than I realize. Like, there's some serious stuff going on here. Now, set that aside for a second. Put that over here for a second, because um, I want to talk about some- something else for just a second. And that is, um, this may be what we experience a lot of times in life, but um, I want to talk about maybe what we expect from life. Because I think a lot of us, as we go throughout our days, we're thinking, you know what, my circumstances are kind of bad now, but they're just going to, they're going to take a turn for the better, and they're going to, they're going to get better. Like, things are going to be okay a little bit, and it's just going to kind of keep going up and to the right, and then I'm... I'm going to kind of settle into a place of comfort and ease. And I think that's kind of what we think in our head. We don't help ourselves out, right? Because we start uh, lusting after things maybe that we don't have. We're, we're sitting around scrolling on Zillow for a couple hours looking at our, what could be our dream houses. Even after you buy a house, I still find myself sometimes scrolling for something that could make my circumstances maybe a little bit better. And uh, I think that we sit and we look at uh, our social media feeds and we see, you know, we follow our friends and their beach vacations and we're like, oh, one day I'll be able to do that too. Or their mountain vacations. Shoot, I got a, a couple friend that's in Greece right now taking vacations and we're following these guys like, oh, one day I'll be doing that too, right? And then, I, I, Carrie and I have gotten into this weird kind of bad habit of watching this show. It's not even that interesting, but it's called Insane Pools. And basically, it's people, it's not worth your time, trust me. But after the kids go to bed, you got to do something. So you turn on the t- whatever. Anyway, but it's basically this group of people come in and they turn your backyard into kind of like a resort. And so we're watching this. Like I said, don't watch it. It's not worth your time. It does weird things to your head. But... We fill our lives and our minds with these things, these, these things about our circumstances getting better. And we don't say it out loud, but I think we live as if at some point in our lives the circumstances are just going to kind of take a turn. And everything is going to be all right. We'll get to a place where there's comfort. We'll get to a place where there's ease. We'll get to a place where uh, obviously we'll be able to one day purchase a dream home. I'll be able to one day have the life that I want. I'll be able to, to one day have, uh, be in the perfect neighborhood with the perfect friends and the perfect neighbors and all of that. And I think we actually find ourselves living in this sad reality over here that was described first as opposed to this dream that we think about. 
And although I kind of have a hard time coming to grips with this, I think that um, in a world where sin runs rampant, I think that many times we're going to find ourselves living in this world over here with pain and uncertainty and anguish. And so what Psalm 6 describes is when our life is on a crash course with this reality over here. The painful, sorrowful reality. And Psalm 6 is going to paint a picture of good news. It's how God cares for us in that sorrow. And as we dive in, we're going to follow David's progression of emotions that he goes through and really learn at the end of the day that in our sorrow, God cares. So if you're experiencing any sort of sorrow or grief or loss right now, Psalm 6 is going to be a confidence booster in the God of the universe who cares for you. And that's my hope this morning, is if you're going through something heavy or you're going through something maybe that's, that's just nagging at you a little bit, that you would understand that in your place right now that God Cares. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalm 6, and we're going to break it up into two sections. The first seven verses, we're going to talk about our sorrow. And then in the last three verses, we're going to talk about God's care, okay? So let's open up Psalm 6. We're going to first address our sorrow. We're going to reread uh, the first few verses, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says this. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. Once again, like so often happens in the Psalms, we find David uh, in in a pretty bad place again, right? He's in a low place. His enemies are, are tormenting. Him, and he's kind of describing this right here. And, and let me give you a little, uh, a little background on this psalm. So this psalm, Psalm 6, is the first of seven penitential psalms, as they're called. Now, if penitential is too big of a word, it was too big of a word for me, so I had to look up the definition. And the idea is it's uh, like a repentance psalm or repentant psalm, right? And so, as you see in the beginning of this uh, chapter, you see first David says, rebuke me not. You kind of get that repentance language, right? Like, rebuke me not, or, nor discipline me, he says in the next verse. And so, what's, what's happening is, is this, this psalm is getting, is getting classified in this penitential psalm because it seems, it appears as if David is saying, God, things are bad in life right now. And I know I don't deserve saving. I know I've messed up. I know that I'm a sinner. But God, please don't discipline me or please don't discipline me anymore. Now, the more I've studied this passage and the more uh, that I've compared it to the other penitential psalms that are in the psalms, uh, I've realized that it's a little bit different than a lot of them. That David doesn't actually uh, identify any specific sin that he's talking about, that he's guilty of. And as a matter of fact, you know, uh, well, you may know David's kind of two hallmark sins that he committed, right? He had his sin where he slept with Bathsheba, and then he's got the sin where he essentially kills Bathsheba's husband as a cover-up. But, but in here, unlike some of the other penitential psalms, David doesn't actually mention that. Because I think that sin isn't the actual focus of David's words here. Because he knows 
in general. He knows he's sinful. He knows he's guilty. He knows he deserves God's punishment. But he's focusing here on his current condition. He's trying to put words to sorrow and show what to do in sorrow. It's simply stated in verse 2. He says, I'm languishing. That's a description of how David is feeling in here. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he said um, he would rather classify the penitential psalms as sorrowful psalms. And I think that's exactly what David is communicating here. He's communicating to us his sorrow. He then goes on to describe his condition as you see it in verse 2. He says, my bones are troubled. And you see in verse 3, he says, my soul is troubled. He said, my bones and my soul are troubled. He's piling these descriptions on top of each other to communicate to us, hey, there's not a part of my body, there's not a part of my being at all that, are, that is not touched by this extreme grief, this extreme sorrow. And then in his next statement, in verse 3, you see it. It's a pretty profound question. He says, but you, O Lord, how long? And then he just stops. He says, how long? And then he just ends his question. It kind of begs for us to ask, how long what? Like, what exactly is he getting at? What exactly is he talking? Why didn't he seem to finish that? Well, this incomplete question from David is a reflection of his condition. It's almost as if his words have run out. He has no more energy to muster up, to say, muster up to say anything. His voice is gone. His breath has run out. He can't even complete a thought, and he very simply just says, how long? Now, my guess is that there, is a, there are a handful of you in here that this very phrase, how long, is a very accurate description of how you feel here this morning. And I would guess that there are a majority of you in here that might not be quite to that point, but you find yourself dealing with something heavy in life. There's something that's weighing on you. Maybe life just feels like it's too much. You're tired, you're stressed, you're, you're anxious, you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you feel like you have to try to fix some sort of situation that you're in, and maybe it's your fault, maybe you got yourself into it, maybe it was a sin issue, maybe it just happened to you, but whatever the case, I would guess that for a lot of us in here, uh, life, in some ways, it kind of feels like it's beyond us. It's, it's too difficult for us to handle. All right, here's my question for all of us. When that kind of sorrow hits, when that kind of challenge hits, what do you do? Where do you run? Like, if I were to ask maybe the roommate that lives with you, or maybe if I were to ask your spouse, uh, what would they say you do when sorrow hits, when trouble hits? For some of us, I think... Uh, uh, you probably have a tendency to run to a glass or two or three of wine in the evening, right? Maybe you run to a couple drinks. It makes it go away. For some of us, we like to, to, to just stuff it down deep and pretend like nothing's happening and just keep going on with life when sorrow hits. So we're just going to pretend like nothing's happening, right? If you're like my wife and you're a doer, when things start to get bad, you, you try to put on your Superman cape because she's a, a task-oriented doer, and you just try to do, 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 fix, 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 and try to bring some sort of order to the chaos, right? Some of you, I'm sure, do that as well. If you're like me, 
um, and things are terrible, uh, you want to retreat to some sort of ease or comfort. So when things are terrible, I say, man, let's go out to eat. Let's do something fun, right? Or if, if things are, are really heading downhill, I'm like, hey, what friends are available to hang out? Let's do something fun. Let's distract ourselves a little bit. Or if I'm languishing, I think, man, let's plan a vacation. Let's get away. Let's do something fun, right? Any of you do this? I'm not the only one, right? I, uh, I'm feeling a little insecure now because Karen and I are going on a vacation in a couple weeks. And you guys are going to look at our pictures and you think, oh, he's just escaping from something that's tough. <laughs> maybe I am, maybe I'm not, okay? This uh, seems like the easiest, simplest, most Sunday school answer that you could ever give in your life. But, but when life is crumbling down, when we're in sorrow, what, what should we do? We should turn to God, right? What does Psalm 6 hammer into our brains? That even when we're guilty like David, even when we don't deserve relief, even when we feel like we're languishing, when we're at our worst, we have permission to approach the God of the universe and approach him in our sorrow with honesty. And he listens. If we're here, if we're Christians, if we're in Christ, we have a Father who would love nothing more than to hear our exact thoughts, even if it sounds like complaining like it does in Psalm 6. He wants to hear from us. What do you do in your sorrow? You know, it reminds me that almost uh, two years ago, <clears throat> uh, I, uh, I chipped my tooth in the back over here. And um, what do you do when you chip a tooth? You don't do anything. At least I don't, right? I hadn't been to the dentist for like 12 years. I'm like, I'm not going to go to the dentist now. And so I just left it. And so about six more months passed, and all of a sudden it was sensitive to extreme cold. And what did I do? I left it, right? Of course. And then it all of a sudden, about six months later, it became sensitive to extreme hot. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of inconvenient. And then another few months later, it became sensitive to like lukewarm and just a little bit cool. And I'm like, oh, this is getting bad. But I left it, right? And then from there, it started to just kind of hurt and ache constantly. This is about two months ago. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. And it started hurting regularly, and I started taking ibuprofen regularly, and then it finally got to the point about a month ago where I chewed down on a piece of, on a gum. That's all I did. I chewed on gum on my tooth, and it sent this sharp shooting pain through my mouth, and it throbbed for like 10 minutes straight, and finally, I made an emergency appointment with a dentist, and you know what he did? He fixed it. He knew what to do. He knew how to fix it. Thank you. Providence, here's the deal. Don't be as dumb as I was, okay? Sorrow is made to be addressed by God. Don't make him your last option. The symptoms are there. The invitation is there to make a, a, a raw, vulnerable, authentic prayer like you see David doing right here in this psalm. I trust, or we have to trust that God can handle this. Now, 
I want to look for a second at, at what David does next in his sorrow. He gets a little bit more proactive in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And I love how David, in his sorrow, doesn't just come and be, but when his words come back to him, he starts getting a little bit more proactive, right? He starts to boldly ask. First, he, he says, turn, God. In other words, God, God, would you turn from what you're doing right now, how you're uh, dealing with me right now, and would you turn in a different direction to deal with me in a different way? And then he says, deliver me right after that. God, would you deliver me from whatever is, is going on? Could you deliver me the way that you only know how to? And then he says, save me. God, could you please just save me from this? And then there's this unique twist at the end of the sentence. He says, turn, deliver, save me, God. Not because I deserve it, but he says, because of your steadfast love, God. Some of your translations uh, might use the word mercy there. Save me because of your mercy. David is pleading to God's character. Uh, Legendary preacher... Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way about that section. He says, David knows that he can't appeal to God's left hand of justice, for he knows his own iniquity and pain too well to know that he deserves God's saving. But rather, he appeals to his right hand of God's mercy, his simple love. Even if you don't deserve it, ask for God's grace. Even if you feel inadequate or guilty or irresponsible, we can put ourselves in David's shoes. It's a biblical thing to still ask for God's mercy and grace. Man, if you're a parent in the room, you know how this works. It happens in parenting all the time. So many of you know who my uh, 20, our 21-month-old son Wells is, Right? He's the little guy who doesn't have much hair, and he kind of waddles around here. So Carrie and I, we frequently say this about Wells. We say, if there's something he's not supposed to do, he's going to find out what that is, and he's going to find a way to do it, okay? He is not exactly the picture of obedience, okay, if you haven't gotten to know him very well. But this this kid, so just to give a few examples, he, he, he loves, uh, well... I won't say he loves it, but he is a kid who will bite his sister from time to time. And he is a kid who will draw on the walls from time to time. And he's a kid who will mess with the electrical outlets over and over and over again, right? And he's a kid who will break toys and take toys from his siblings quite often. But man, even though that's frustrating, man, do I love it when he crawls up into my lap. Man, do I love it when he's tired and he lays his head down on my shoulder. And man, do I love it uh, when I come home from work and I open up the door and he's running to me and he says, Dada! Like that. And after all he's done, I could have kicked him out of the house by now, right? <laughs> but when he runs to me, I don't say, man, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have colored on that wall. No, I run up and I scoop him up and I embrace him. This is how parenting works. Kids will fail us and frustrate us over and over and over and over again, right? But we're waiting over and over and over to show 
our own kids' mercy and grace again and again and again. And our God, so much more than me or any parent in the room does, embodies this characteristic of steadfast love and mercy. And he wants to bring you in, and he wants to hear you, and he wants to hear you in your sorrow. In your sorrow, God actually cares. David's emotions in this psalm, as he goes on, illustrate in the next few verses how hard this really is to live out. In spite of knowing God's steadfast love and his mercy here, um, he goes on to describe what he's feeling, what his current condition is. It's pretty sad. You look in verse 6, read it uh, there. It says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye lays waste because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Man, what a description. Weary, moaning, tears, drenching his bed with tears. His eyes are wasting away. In other words, they're like bloodshot, and and he can't even hardly keep them open anymore. He is weak. And for those of us who are battling significant sorrow, I think one of the easiest things to do, uh, like David in the, right in this section, is, is to kind of become self-focused. It's the easiest thing to do is to look at our misery, to look at our circumstances, to, to look at our emotions. This is what David is doing here for a second and, and, just, and just thinking about all these things that are going wrong. That's what I have a tendency to do all the time, and I become just completely laser-focused on my current circumstances. But David is about to show us another way. He's about to give us a whiplash in this passage that's been all about sorrow, all about grief, for seven straight verses, and he's going to change his tone. So the first seven verses were about sorrow. This next point is about God's care. Read these next two verses in verse 8 and 9 with me. It says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David, in one line, just went from languishing, from weeping, from bloodshot eyes, from all of that and being troubled to this place of being confident and being comforted. Something changed dramatically. In this last section, we see this dramatic change of tone because of what God has done. But it's very interesting as you read the last verse in the section because you realize in verse 10 that his circumstances, even though he has changed his tone completely and he has confidence in God, his circumstances actually haven't changed yet. Look at verse 10. It says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in, his, in a moment. His enemies, the ones who are bringing him sorrow this whole time, he said, they shall be in the future be put to shame. And then he says, they shall turn back in the future. He's speaking kind of prophetically about what he knows will happen to them in the future. He's not thinking of something that's already happened in the past. So David's confidence, his whole countenance, his whole being is actually changed. And yet his circumstances have stayed the same. How is this possible? Maybe a a better question is, is this possible for us? I think this is possible because he had been touched by God. 
He had very simply had a supernatural encounter with God. God had spoken to him. He had sensed God's power in his presence that had come to him in a way that had made him uh, confident in the promises of God that God will come through. So that's David's transformation. But what does that actually mean for us? What do we do with this? So I think, first of all, there's two things. One is that, that we can understand that God's care can bring com- comfort in the midst of our sorrow, even before our circumstances change. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. It means that the ultimate pursuit during our sorrow is for God himself. Now, there's an interesting thing about this section. is It's that... That we kind of, when you put ourselves in this, or in, in the shoes of David, we actually have a distinct advantage over David because in this psalm and in this time, he didn't know exactly how God was going to deal with his sins. He didn't know exactly how God was going to go about keeping his promise. There was a little bit of questioning in, in how God was going to do what he was going to do. But for us, we know that God is going to keep his promise because he kept his promise through Jesus. We are on this side of Jesus, and so we know that God has not moved away from us, but he's moved toward us. You see, the gospel says that all of us here, we're in David's position. That we're guilty, that we're deserving of God's punishment, that we deserve to be abandoned. We deserve for God to run the other way, but instead God actually moves toward us in sending Jesus toward us. That he paid for the sins that we committed, that he hung alone on the cross for the sins that we committed against us. He took on the death that we deserve so that when we ask forgiveness, so that when we trust in him, Jesus removes our sin. We become God's child. And not only that, but he comes to live inside of us. And he will hear our cries. He will answer our prayer. He will accept us as as he promised to David. Can I tell you a little bit more in depth of why Jesus is actually such a good savior for us in a time of sorrow? Is because Jesus actually knows sorrow. You see, in verse 3, David says, my soul is troubled. That exact phrase is repeated in the New Testament in John 12, 27. Jesus' very own words, he says, my soul is troubled. Jesus knows sorrow. We see them, him then in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. He says, as death was coming to him, he knew what was coming to him. He said in verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Then in the next chapter, Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, our Savior, the one who we pray to in our grief, in our sorrow, knows sorrow. He understands. You know how it feels good to be understood by somebody. When you say, man, I'm just suffering because I just had this bad breakup. And somebody's like, yeah, you know what? I just went through that a little bit ago. You're like, oh. Or, man, I'm in the middle of this, this battle with with cancer, and it's harder than I could have realized. And, and you find someone like, yeah, me too. I'm battling through it too. Or for some of you, 
parents, you're like, man, then my baby keeps waking up and interrupting my sleep over and over and over. And then finally you meet a parent like, oh, man, my baby's a terrible sleeper too. You're like, oh. And you share in that because they know your sorrow. Well, Jesus knows your sorrow because he's felt it. When you pray to Jesus, you're not just praying to a God who conceptually understands the idea of sorrow. He not only grasps the concept, but he hears you with empathy and compassion because he has cried tears himself and his body and his soul have been troubled, just like our bodies and our souls have been troubled. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. This is our confidence. If we are in Christ, we have a Savior who knows sorrow, and that when we trust in him, he is with us. He comes to live inside of us, and he relates to us in our sorrow. So Christians in the room, could we be a people who turn to Jesus in sorrow? And there's no greater proof that God cares for us than the fact that, that, that he sent Jesus to die the death that we deserved, that he came to, to redeem us to new life, And that he promises to live life with us forever and ever in eternity. So could you uh, be, or could we be a people who start turning to Jesus in our sorrow? Could we lay that before him? And could I say, if you're if you're not a Christian in the room, and you find yourself in a place where, and you feel like like grief and sorrow are just common everyday things. You feel maybe stuck. Maybe life is in some sort of vicious cycle and you feel like you can't get out. You may have some friends or family that have helped you some, but you feel like they don't always come through for you. And maybe you just don't know what comfort or peace looks like in this time of life and you don't know what direction to go next. Can I say that Jesus specializes exactly in this area? That's why we call him Savior. He offers complete forgiveness for the worst of the worst that we've done. And he offers to take your guilt and your shame, and he offers unconditional love, and he offers a a relationship, a friendship that is greater than any human relationship that we could ever find. And so the invitation from Psalm 6, if you have never trusted in Jesus, is to come to him empty-handed. You don't bring anything to him, but in in the, the spirit of Psalm 6... To Jesus, I need something. I'm broken. I know that I have sinned. Jesus, I I trust you. I want you to take care of my life. I want you to deliver me. I want you to save me. I want you to forgive me. And in this, Jesus doesn't promise to change our circumstances, but he does promise a different thing. He promises a different kind of life, an abundant life that is different than anything that we could get from life circumstances. A life lived with him. And he also promises a future with him. For anyone in Christ, he promises that he will wipe away every tear, he will wipe away every pain, and we will live with him in joyful eternity.
So providence, could we turn to God because he cares? Could we consistently be a people who believe in our sorrow, God cares? Let's turn to Jesus in our sorrow. Let me pray. God, um, we are thankful uh, that this is true, God. Um, we are thankful that, that even in the midst of, of hard times, of sad times, of depressing times, you don't leave us, but you invite us in. You care for us. And God, I pray that um, as we are people who are experiencing different kinds of pain, as we are people who are experiencing different kinds of sorrow, um, Jesus, would we trust in you because you know you have felt the depths of sorrow. You felt the depths of, of grief. Jesus, could we be a people who trust in you wholeheartedly and fully? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.